Hello, Radio Land, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. Ahoy. My name is Lori Weiner, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review Books. Joining me today is my usual co-host, Tom Watts. Hi, Tom. Hello. Is it Ahoy now? I just added that. I like it. We are going to be talking to Leslie M.M. Bloom today about her new book, Everybody Behaves Badly, the true story behind Hemingway's masterpiece, The Sun Also Rises. Stay tuned. We are talking with Leslie Bloom just came out with a book, or recently came out with a book, Everybody Behaves Badly, The True Story Behind Hemingway's Masterpiece, The Sun Also Rises. I love this subtitle because I don't really have to say anything more about it. That really tells you what you need to know about the book. Hi, Leslie. Hello. Thanks for having me. Good to have you. The Sun Also Rises is Hemingway's second book. Well, no, actually fourth. fourth. Yeah, because the first two are, one is a collection of vignettes, Another one is a collection of short stories. Then he has a satirical novella, which is released before that. Oh, and then Sun Also Rises is the debut novel. So it's the holy grail. It's the big, significant book. Right. Now, the first two are kind of both versions of In Our Time. Correct. And then The Torrents of Spring. No, no, no. Well, the, the first one is In Our Time, and it, it's a little Paris volume. And then the second one is 10 poems and three stories. Mm-hmm. And then In Our Time comes out in America as a book with the short stories, and the vignettes. That's right. And then he writes a nasty little novella in 10 days in his spare time, sending up his mentor and a few of his other handful of friends. And um, His mentor being Sherwood Anderson? That was Sherwood Anderson. He would never considered Anderson a mentor, but Hemingway's early writings were often compared back sure. to Anderson's writings. Rightfully so. Makes sense. I, yeah. Well, critics constantly drew the comparison. And yeah. later, after when Torrance was released, Torrance really did quite a nasty send-up of one of Sherwood Anderson's most recent books. And Anderson was stunned by its release, and he said, he realized then that Hemingway had been hurt by the comparisons, and he said, you know, I, I never drew the comparison. It wasn't me. Other people were doing this. I always thought mm-hmm. that he had a unique style, and I championed that, which he did. Nobody championed mm-hmm. Hemingway in the early days more than he did. But Hemingway really resented the comparison because Hemingway felt he was unique, he knew he was unique, and he wanted to be regarded as such. And when you say it was a nasty little book, what was the nastiness that you refer to? Sherwood Anderson, who, by the way, um, for readers who may not be as familiar with him, he was a big novelist and a big writer in uh, the 1920s. And um, Winesburg, Ohio, one of our favorite books. Exactly. Also really well known for short stories. And he had, in 1925, a book that came out called Dark Laughter. And it was supposed to be his post-war book, and it was quite stylized. And Hemingway, who was pretty scornful of most of his work before that, was just totally repulsed by this book. And other people, Scott Fitzgerald is on record in a letter to Max Perkins saying, oh, I thought it was cheap and silly also. But unlike Hemingway, Fitzgerald didn't feel the need to rebuke him publicly. Hemingway, on the other hand, takes pen to paper, and he writes a novel a direct satire of dark laughter called The Torrents of Spring. And then he sends it to his publisher and says, you know, this has to come out right away. Well, lo and behold, it actually also happens to be Sherwood Anderson's publisher, mm-hmm. Horace Liverwright, and the publishers say there's no way in hell. Who do you think is going to read this? Not to mention that mm-hmm. this guy is the reason why you have any of your high-placed connections in the first place. That letter exchange is pretty wonderful, and I quote it at length in my book. And it's Hemingway is able to get out of his publishing contract because they will not publish this naughty little satire. 
And then he gets to famously go to Charles Scribner's Sons, which does take what Fitzgerald called the unpromising satire as a condition for publishing Sun Also Rises. Interesting. Let's jump ahead. We'll get back to the meat of the book. But let's jump ahead to Hemingway's last book, which is The Garden of Eden. I find it very interesting the way that book retells the stories that are in, in our time and the stories mm-hmm. in all of the novels in, in various ways. And because that book is such a different take on them, briefly, it is a man and a woman who have a very kind of tortured relationship. And one aspect of it is he wants to be the girl and she wants to be the boy mm-hmm. in the relationship. And they cut their hair to match and dye their hair to match. And they, like in the story Mr. and Mrs. Elliot, they bring mm-hmm. a third woman into the equation and there's a kind of menage going on. But it's made me kind of reread all of Hemingway through this trans lens. The emasculation in Sun Also Rises as a, mm-hmm. as a some kind of wish fulfillment fantasy. That's a fascinating take on that. I mean, the emasculation in Sun Also Rises is one of the most curious decisions just coming from somebody who's as hyper-masculine as Hemingway. And there was such a, I don't want to say a danger, but it was obvious that people who read the book because it was written in the first person and because the character of Jake Barnes was a journalist and resembled Hemingway in so many ways, there would be obviously a big presumption that he was Jake Barnes. And and we should say that Jake Barnes is impotent from an injury in the war. Right. And Hemingway also himself famously received war injuries, and he had had something like 227 pieces of shrapnel, you know, shot into his legs in Italy. And these were well-known injuries because he was supposedly the first American wounded in Italy. So he, there were headlines back in the States. So people knew. And so they might have assumed that he was the, the literal inspiration for that character's inability to perform. And for me, I wasn't looking at it through a retrospective lens. I was looking at it in real time. And Mm -hmm. it made me really like Hemingway as an artist because it made me realize how many risks he was willing to take. Mm -hmm. He was willing to sacrifice his personal dignity to create this literary device. And it's one of the most memorable and effective literary devices ever. I mean, this guy, carnally speaking, can't participate, but it also makes him a perfect observer in a different way. And Hemingway, in his own way, was a perfect observer. He was a journalist. He had a really shrewd sense of situational awareness. He had what his son told me was a a rat trap memory. So if you had too many drinks and you were telling him a little bit about your history, you might not remember the chat the next day, but he would remember every bit of it. And he would call it, Mm -hmm. quote, a valuable piece of gossip and store it away for a future character. So the literal encapsulation of this character as an observer seems to me symbolic of Hemingway. But I never had seen it before as a, a wish fulfillment thing, and I'm fascinated by that, yeah, that interpretation. It, it's purely from the Garden of Eden that that, mm. that comes in, because Mr. and Mrs. Elliot yeah. in our time, or that story... Mr. and Mrs. Elliot, a very early Hemingway short story. Right, an early Hemingway short story, which is mm. published in, in our time in mm-hmm. 1925, so just two years earlier in the American version. In our time was 25, the American edition was 25, and then the the stories, I can't remember if it was 23 or 24. But anyway, it had been around since right. like the mid-early yeah. mid 20s. Yeah, and that is the basic plot line of mm-hmm. the Garden of Eden. So he's clearly reworking these older stories. He reworks a lot, actually. Mm-hmm. And so when you see Movable Feast, one of the vignettes in Movable had actually been in the earliest version of The Sun Also Rises and then just got repurposed decades later as a memoir. What I was going to say, well, you were talking before about seeing sun through the prism of garden. I mean, you have to remember that decades and decades and so much life yes. had been lived in between then. So I would be hesitant to say that the wish fulfillment was may have been driving what he was writing in 1920, 25. 
But he's consistent, and the things that preoccupy him as a young man, as a writer, are preoccupying him again in his final years. And so Paris of the 1920s was very much on his mind when he passed away and in the late 1950s had basically written a movable feast, which could be called, I guess, a fictionalized memoir. I don't even think he would object to that classification. Mm -hmm. But he's very thematic through his life also. And so even the theme of the sun also rises. You know, the sun rises, the sun falls, seasons come and go, generations just replace each other, the cyclical theme, he comes back to that often in movable feast. So the things that preoccupy him as a young man are still very much in place later. What about your preoccupation with Hemingway? When did it begin? Were you very young? How did that happen? Well, I've always been a lost generation obsessive. And honestly, my entree to that circle was through Fitzgerald because I started early, you know, reading Gatsby and he led me to Sun Also Rises. My fixation in the early days was sort of femme fatale. So Daisy Buchanan and then Lady Brett Ashley and as a very young woman then, you know, studying the allure of these creatures was a, a pastime. And then and reading about Zelda is, is fun. Zelda, I mean, my God, doesn't get yeah. more, more yeah. fatale than, than that. <laughs> so these were role models. Yeah, and they would all be so disappointed in me now. My decadence factor has plunged. In my twenties, they would they would have been very very proud. Well, you know, if decadence stays too long, it's it becomes something else. It's good. That's true. I think you you left it behind. Yeah, I don't don't know that decadence ages that well. You know, and I feel like it's also a cumulative state of mind. Also, and honestly, I've been working too hard documenting the lives of these decadent bastards lately to have any decadence of my own. (laughs) Later, Hemingway became. More interesting to me than Fitzgerald because, like Hemingway, I am a reporter, and I have, was initially my career began with an interest in war reporting. I actually met my husband at a biochemical warfare training session well, for ABC News. That's romantic. It was so romantic. <laughs> I got to learn how to inject his thigh with an atropine needle. <gasps> Who could? It was a great thigh. That? Still a great thigh. Uh, <laughs> haunch. Um, this sounds like a segue, but it's coming back. And so I think that people presumed as I was writing this book that as a female biographer, I might be harder on Hemingway or take like a stereotypical 1970s feminist slant on him and have it just be like a, just a hard take on him. And I don't feel that way. I actually really relate to him in certain respects. He behaved badly, like many of the people in my book, but who doesn't in this book and, and outside of the book. But he has valuable lessons for journalists, whether you're female or male. Also, there were a lot of life lessons from him that I really liked. I mean, he was intensely curious. He always wanted to know how everything worked, whether he was in a new place, he wanted to know everything in, you know, in the landscape. If he was looking at a new engine, he wanted to know how it worked. And it was both personally and professionally, it was a really good reminder to just always sharpen that level of curiosity. I admired his economy of phrase. I mean, he was just instructive to me in so many ways. And so it really irritated me that there was a presumption that a female biographer could not relate to him. Mm-hmm. I want to trot out one of my other personal favorite theories of mine. Let's hear it. (laughs) It has to do with authors and their press. And this hit me when I was reading Kerouac. And Kerouac becomes immediately famous, not with the first book, but with an early book. And he gets famous as a certain kind of writer. Part of that was the myth of the spontaneous composition. Mm -hmm. You know, he just wrote it all in three days on Benzedrine and and never revised anything. That was On the Road, which is still a really good book. And then he just wrote a bunch of crap for the rest of his life, partly because he refused to edit anything. Yeah. Right? Because he was was spontaneous composition. And so he kind of got ruined by this persona that he was presenting. And Hemingway strikes me as having something like that happen to him. I mean, obviously with Torrance of Spring, as we said earlier, it could be a bit of a dick anyway, but 
We read in our time, and you read uh, The Sun Also Rises, and you see a very sensitive intellect looking at the and, and he's a humanist also. I mean, when you yeah. look at his war writing, I personally Breaking feel like news, On the yeah. Road feels very dated, and I don't know that it did anything to revolutionize language in the way that, you know, Hemingway's works did, but on the, the note of the Hemingway persona, it's a mm-hmm. fascinating one. It's something I deal with a lot in my book, which right. is really about the creation of the Hemingway persona and what he did to help contribute to it, and also how it was marketed by his publisher and their marketing team and their press team. I mean, they knew that they had a one-two punch with Sun because they had this juicy voice of a generation, post-war novel filled with booze, sex, dissolution, but they also had this writer, and he was not what people thought of when they thought of writers before. I mean, writers were Proustian, they were dusty. I mean, this is the guy who, like, reeks of the outdoors, but he's intellectual, and Mm -hmm. he has married a lot of bad behavior to high literature and revolutionized the language at the same time. So they were psyched. They knew that they could sell him along with books. And there was a very big marketing campaign surrounding the book and a big press campaign trotting out Hemingway to the papers, and the papers ate it up. You know, in terms of whether it hindered him, I mean, Hemingway loved the Hemingway persona, and he did everything he could to, you know, court the press and encourage it. It did hamper him as years went on. And then the writing was also a part of that. He was easy to satirize. He was in danger throughout the 1940s of becoming a caricature of himself. and Across the river and into was, the trees, right? Yeah, exactly. So that's a, a late novel that mm-hmm. basically he's writing his own Torrance of Spring. It's a satire on the Hemingway persona. But also that is satirized, too. So E.B. White writes a satire of, of Hemingway at that point called something mm-hmm. like uh, Across the Street and Into the Bar. <laughs> um, and you know, Hemingway, he's, I mean, he's not pleased about it. He hates critics. I mean, he can dish it out, but he certainly can't, yeah. can't take it in. And, but the thing about that, so he could have really just devolved totally into caricature, but he wasn't having it at all. So what does he do? I mean, he comes out and he writes Old Man in the Sea. The Sun Also Rises was spectacularly successful, but it was written in around six weeks. And then he's agonizing over his books after that. And Farewell to Arms is also similarly successful, but it was a more agonizing, right? The later stuff for whom the bell tolls was an agonizing, right? And then after that, I mean, his, his stuff is just really not deemed by critics as being as good. When he's writing Old Man in the Sea, it's written in eight weeks again. As we were talking mm-hmm. about before, he's been thinking about this concept for years and years. He's known forever that he wants to write about an old man in, in a battle in the ocean with the elements. And so it seems spontaneous, but it was just this insane burst of energy. And it's the most distilled, perfect version of Hemingway. It's, it's like Hemingway 2.0 in a way, and it completely rehabilitates his reputation. He gets mm-hmm. the Pulitzer, then he gets right. the Nobel Prize. And he's still writing like crazy after that. But it's almost like he doesn't have to prove himself in the same way. When you look at the tenor of his interviews before and after, like there's an emeritus feel to the interviews that happened after Old Man. And then, you know, later on after he dies, I mean, the Hemingway persona, it has been so complicated and so lucrative for so many people. And one of the reasons why I wanted to write my book was because so many people know the Hemingway persona. They know Hemingway is a lifestyle icon, but they don't know why he mattered in the first place. And so this is really about how Hemingway became Hemingway and and why he has been so significant and also so lucrative for so many different, Mm. for the family, for for companies, for Mercedes. It's insane. I mean, Hemingway himself was involved in many publicity campaigns during his lifetime, but he continues to be highly marketable. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, coming to you from Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. And now it's time for this week's book recommendation. 
We are back in the studio with Laura Albert. We are so pleased to have her back again. She's going to give us a book recommendation. Hi, Laura. Hi. I'm right now reading, I'm not done with it, but I'm reading Annie Pruel Barkskins. And I love her. I got to hear her read. And I guess she's 80 years old. And she is so... I don't know why anyone would just have a problem with someone being 80. I know so many people who are 80 and way sharper than anyone in their 20s. I think 80 is the new 12. (laughs) And the book just immerses you in this realm of, well, the scope of the story is massive, but the thing is, it feels like she really hates people. And you fall in love with these characters, like you care about them, and then I go, oh, they're dead. You know, it's like, oh, they're stabbed through the groin and a log death. And it's like, wait a minute. It's like, wait, Annie, please, don't you care about the characters the way you seem to? Because I care about this character, and you just kill them in a really horrible way. And But you realize what, what she's writing about her themes that it's almost like she's saying do not live in the illusion of your isolation of self it's not just other people actually it's the land and you guys have fucked it up and i want you to feel for the devastation that's lost and the way she does it and immerses you in the language and the landscape of the trees and the devastation that we've done and you start to realize the horror of this loss is like the horror of the loss that we've we're doing to our planet. And hearing her speak and give the prognosis of, well, I'm kind of an optimist. No, you're not. <laughs> you pretty much think we're doomed. Uh, it's just a wonderful, brilliant work of art. And thank God it's big because I don't want it ever to end. But so many people have to die and suddenly and you care about them. The novel is Barkskins. Yeah, Barkskins by Annie And Annie Pruel is the author, and the recommender is Laura Alpert. No, Laura Albert. Laura Albert. If you have Annie Pruel, I get to be Laura Albert. That's true. Annie Pruel. French translation works for both. Author of Sarah, The Heart is Deceitful Above All Things and Other Works. Thanks for coming back and talking to us. Thank you so much. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Now we're going to return to our interview with Leslie M.M. Bloom. The reason I bring up the Kerouac thing is, do you think that this kind of hyper-masculine, you called it hyper-masculinity at one point, the, this hyper-masculine persona became a trap that made writing those further novels more difficult than they would have been otherwise? I think it's a complicated question. I think that, I mean, there are always themes of hyper-masculinity in his novels, but he's also insanely sensitive. And again, I always see Hemingway as a, as a humanist because I look at how he writes about war, for instance, and how the grassroots level of war and the sensitivities are so acute. And that's why maybe why he's fascinating to us because there are so many nuances with him as opposed to just being the hyper-masculine character. I think it created complications for him, but he mastered it. Mm-hmm. in his own lifetime and you know until the end of his life when everything fell apart i think it was a trap for lots of other writers who followed him i mm-hmm. think for generations i think philip roth said it although i could be misquoting but he said something along the lines of after hemingway half of the writers in america were writing like him and the other half were trying not to write like him so to have to measure yourself against that mm-hmm. you know hyper masculine 
form of writing and image. And then you look at like Norman Mailer, who like worshipped Hemingway. I mean, he even had four wives, for God's sake. You know, I mean, like the Hemingway standard just became very big boots to fill. Yeah. The I mean, that's why I had four wives. Too. Wait, <laughs> you had four wives? What did you do with them? Yeah, where did you stash said wives? Hemingway, as you say, people get out of touch with what that was. And, but to read in our time, or The Sun Also Rises, is just to immediately understand. I mean, it's so mm-hmm. powerful. It's so clear. It's so easy to get, especially if you've been reading great writers like Edith Wharton or Henry James. It's yeah. just like, just blows everything away. It's a new way of writing, and it's mm-hmm. very obvious. And with luck, and you know, your book will bring more people to that experience, which is fantastic. I do have a question about the early days in Paris. You talk about the publisher marketing, you know, kind of understanding what they had and marketing it. But you also talk about Hemingway kind of marketing himself when he was quite young. Today, people would say, you know, he was building his brand or whatever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But when you're that young and that busy shaping your identity and finding your art, how much time is there really for planning that kind of a conquering in your career? I think in his case, in the early years, in the early to mid-1920s, I don't think he was thinking about marketing himself. He was just thinking about becoming the best writer of his generation. Later on is really more where the marketing came in. But he was patently ambitious, and that was one of the most surprising things for me in this research was seeing how obvious the ambition was, unrepentant. It was almost to the point of, like, quite bad manners. But you're behind him somehow, despite this show of ambition. And it wasn't just people from his peer group characterizing him that way, because testimony you always have to take with a grain of salt. But this is Hemingway in his own words, in his letters. We have him to one publisher saying, I want, like hell, to be published. And he's Mm -hmm. complaining to Ford Maddox Ford that it takes years for a writer to get his name known. And he's 25, you know, it's like, but I mean, he's looking at Fitzgerald, you know, who who was almost repulsively young when he became an international literary celebrity. Did you find the most valuable research was in the original letters rather than all the volumes and volumes of things that have been written about Hemingway? I mean, was that really your anchor? Yeah, absolutely. A thousand percent. There's been so much written on Hemingway that if I read until the day that I died, I probably, you know, even as his biographer, could not read everything. But for me, it was all about going back to the source material, going to the letters, going to memoirs, going to interviews. And the whole point was telling the story from the point of view of the participants of the time. And it actually created an enormous permissions headache for me because so much of my book is told from the point of view of the participants. And I'm quoting the hell out of these people. But Mm -hmm. it means that, you know, so much material was quoted that it took me six months to be able to actually use all of it in the published version. um, You had to go to several sources to get permission. But one person is the head of the estate of Hemingway, and they give you permission for those quotes from Hemingway? Oh, there was so much Hemingway material quoted. Oh, my God. So most of that came from Simon & Schuster, which owns Scribner's now, but these decisions are made with the Hemingway estate and their attorneys. But they were really supportive of me and the project. They didn't ask to preview the project in any way, which I could not have given permission to do, so that, thank God. Do they need to see the context of the quotes as well as the quotes themselves? That you were using? No, but I mean, they knew the angle of the book and all of the quotes had to be individually submitted. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if they had had questions about the context, then I would have gone back and given them the paragraph Mm -hmm. or whatever. But I mean, there was so much, believe me, so much material that that would have been a horrible headache for everybody. Mm -hmm. The Hemingway family knew what I was up to with the book. And I had Valerie Hemingway, who was Hemingway's assistant in his final years and became after his death, his daughter-in-law. She had helped prepare his estate. 
and had fact-checked movable feasts with him in Paris, and she was like a right-hand woman with me. We actually went to Paris together to retrace the fact-checking journey Fun. of movable feasts. I had interviewed his son twice. He's a completely remarkable person. He's insanely knowledgeable, not ghouly reverential. And so they were not hesitantly supportive. I mean, they were not participants in the project in a sponsoring kind of way, but they they helped. But again, the idea was to go back to the basics. And I spent a lot of time in archives. I mean, just tons and tons and tons of correspondence. And in most cases, a lot of the letters have been anthologized, but I would go back and look at the actual letters themselves. Even Fitzgerald was a deliciously horrid speller. And there's so much of his personality comes through these kinds of mistakes. Like every letter that you see quoted in my book is how it actually was in the letters. And the anthologies tend to sanitize things a little bit. Mm. Well, may we all be adequately fact-checked. Um, <laughs> and uh, the book is Everyone Behaves Badly. The author is Leslie M.M. Bloom. Thanks so much for coming in to the LARB Radio Hour. Thank you very much for having and me. And welcome to L.A. Thank you. In our latest incarnation of the LARB Book Club, we had Janet Fitch in, and she was talking about her book, Painted Black, which was originally published in 2007, but because there's a new film about it, directed by Amber Tamblin, we decided we would choose it as our book for the book club and read it. And it was a real pleasure to read it again. It's a great novel, even better than I remembered it. And How does know, one join the LAR book club? Go to lareviewbooks.org slash membership. When we had our book club meeting, I asked her to read from the first few pages of the book. It's a great little section. Let's listen to it now. Everyone was playing it now. John Lennon had just been shot in New York. And wherever Josie went, people were playing the same fucking Beatles songs until you wanted to throw up. At least Double Fantasy had Yoko Ono. On the cover that leaned against the dirty couch, John and Yoko pressed together for a kiss they would never finish. People were always trashing Yoko Ono, blaming her for breaking up the Beatles. But Josie knew they were just jealous that John preferred Yoko to some bloated megaband. Nobody ever really loved a lover, because love was a private party and nobody got on the guest list. She liked the pictures of Yoko and John in their white bed, their frizzy hippie hair. They'd retreated to the country with two passports only. From the outside, it looked like death. People could pound the walls all they wanted, but they'd never find the door. Nobody could guess at the gardens inside. Out the long windows of Henry Coe's studio, the hills and shacks of Echo Park tumbled toward Sunset Boulevard, like a child's bedspread scattered with toys. Bare winter jacarandas broke the view with their angular arms, round pods hanging from their branch wrists like castanets. Henry kept crying about John Lennon. Josie felt worse about Darby Crash. Darby had just killed himself in an act of desperate theater, a gesture swamped by the Beatles' death like a raft in a backwash of a battleship. But at least she'd known him with his shyness, his broken-toothed smile. All their friends had gone to the funeral, everybody but her. His death was so horribly unnecessary, such a stupid stunt, acted out by someone so sad and fucked up, he would kill himself out of a need to be noticed. Josie thought it was repulsive to treat it like a party. 
and then the beetle took it all away anyway. But he wanted it that way, Penn said. She'd covered it for Puke Magazine, for, for Puke Magazine, saying who'd been there like it was an after party. At least they'd known him. Whereas look at Henry getting all teary-eyed over John Lennon, whom he'd never even met. Huge crowds converged last weekend in Griffith Park to mourn the lost Beatle. They didn't go, she and Penn and their friends. You could just tell it was going to be some overage love-in, hippie beads, and give peace a chance. When anybody could tell, nobody was ever going to give fucking peace a chance. Nobody was going back to Woodstock anytime soon. But she was sure old Henry showed up with the other banal heads, lit incense and rang finger symbols and blew some pot, no doubt, in John's memory, Om Rama Rama. Did John Lennon really want all that? Was that was he, what he was about? From what she'd heard, the guy had some wit and brains. Did he really want to be the dead guy of the hour, like a melting centerpiece? Finally, the artist stepped away from his easel, sighing. What say, Jose? Pack it in. She unfurled her legs, felt the blood rush back, that tingle and burn, fr stretching fragile shoulders, their delicate bones clearly visible, small breasts with their dark nipples, the black triangle that contrasted with her unlikely bleached hair, the roots coming in dark. She put her clothes back on, a vintage dress she traded for a domino bracelet, torn leggings, and worked her feet into spike-heeled pumps from Goodwill. As Henry cleaned his brushes, she touched up her blood-red lipstick, then joined him on the couch, orange velvet edged in brown dirt. He rolled a joint, special dope he called the spider, brown turds of buds his friends in Hawaii sent him. Old hippies got so into their pot. She didn't mind sharing, but she didn't have to make a cult out of it. As they smoked, Henry went on about John Lennon how he couldn't believe he was dead like the guy was some fucking saint. He'd finally found himself, he kept saying. That cat had just finally worked it out. She toked along with him, knee to knee, and thought about the guy who shot Lennon, shot by a desperate fan. On the news, fans were always desperate, got his signature, and then shot him down. The saddest thing about it was that she wasn't more shocked. To Josie, it just seemed part of the way things were heading. Ronald Reagan, greedheads running everything. Killing John Lennon just seemed like mopping up. 30,000 people missing in El Salvador, those nuns. And everybody in America was worried about who shot J.R. She and Henry leaned back against the couch. The spider, she had to admit, was major deluxe. Henry turned his head slowly, keeping it supported on the couch back looking at her with his small pot-reddened eyes that always smiled even if he was angry or sad. He smelled of some weird liniment he brewed himself for nursing his Tai Chi injuries, roots and licorice and some kind of bugs. He put his hand on her knee. Jose, you still with that guy, that Harvard cat? His hand on her knee. Henry Coe was like 35. What was she supposed to do with an old guy like that? My, Michael, yeah, we're still together. At least she hoped they were. Maybe he was back. In fact, she, he might be home right now waiting for her. Suddenly, she had to go. She put her child-sized hand on top of the artist's turpentine dry one. But I'll let you know if we break up, Henry. I swear. Uh. <laughs> Darby Crash has always been a favorite of yours, Laurie. That was great. I enjoyed that very much. And the book is wonderful. Janet's book. 
I wasn't a punk fan at all. So I kind of felt that the death of Darby Crash represented everything that I disliked about the punk movement. And that is that when you kill yourself for attention and then you're eclipsed by the death of John Lennon, to me, it's like a great cosmic comment on the stupidity of killing yourself for attention. I had a student I was working with for a while who was writing a book about suicide. And part of his argument was that suicide is a perfectly rational response to life for some people. And that in the same way that deciding to live is a reasonable, we understand that as a reasonable choice, so is deciding to die. And that So the, you are defending Darby Crash and, and his choices. Well, he wanted to die. I'm not sure that our character here, Josie, is correct about Darby Crash, that it was a pathetic thing to do. It may have been uh, actually a kind of reasonable thing to do. I'm just going to let that hang in the air. (laughs) The thing that I love about that opening section, one of the reasons I asked her to read it, is that this young woman's attitude is so much fun, right? Mm -hmm. It's one version of the punk attitude Mm -hmm. in which your elders are just idiots and you're so clear about why and how they're idiots. And once you hear that attitude from a young person, they're always right. It's not like you think, oh, well, they're so misguided. They don't understand what life's really about. Well, actually, they do. They understand it perfectly well. Well, but you don't agree, which is a hilarious line that the Beatles were... Um, bloated megaband. Bloated, bloated megaband. That's a very <laughs> funny way to... I mean, you really have to be on the on the periphery to describe the Beatles that way. And yet... It's not untrue at that point in history. So, yeah, fantastic book, fantastic author. Janet Fitch is now finishing her magnum opus on the Russian Revolution. We are so looking forward to that. Two 800-page volumes. Going to read every page of it. And we'll have her in as soon as that's done. Come to the end of another edition of the LARB Radio Hour. We want to thank our engineer, Ernesto Orleano, Alan Minsky, our producer and questionable moral center, Jim Lane, executive producer, Emerson College, in the heart of Hollywood for the use of its beautiful facilities. Longer versions of our interviews with our guests are available on our website, thelareviewofbooks.org. Also, iTunes, Stitcher, and all other podcast purveyors and platforms. I'm Lori Weiner for Tom Lutz. Thank you for listening. 